I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about, I guess it's an appropriate topic for flu season, cold season, <laughs> American health care, particularly the question, why is American health care so unhealthy? Um, we're going to turn for a diagnosis of the, the situation to uh, our old friend, uh, my personal friend, but also a great friend of the Ashbrook Center and our programs for teachers, uh, Professor Lauren Hall. Lauren is Professor and Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at Rochester Institute of Technology, which has a terrific, one of the best departments in the country for the study of politics in a serious way. And she has been, of course, teaching courses there, but also teaching for us in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program, particularly courses on the American founding and the progressive era. Besides being a great uh, teacher and a wonderful colleague, she's also a terrific scholar. And I think particularly for our conversation today, her really, really interesting book, The Medicalization of Birth and Death, which I think came out in 2019 from Johns Hopkins Press. Uh, I think I'm going to recommend it to everyone out there, our readers who are interested in healthcare and healthcare policy. You, uh, you will not want to miss this. Lauren Hall, thanks for taking the time to join us today. On the American idea. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's always wonderful to be with you. Um, American healthcare. It seems like everyone agrees, no matter what their view is across the political spectrum in America, there's something wrong with American healthcare. It seems like the common complaints you hear are things are very expensive. Things are hard to access, at least for certain people. And things are unnecessarily complicated, burdensome, and bureaucratic. Talk to us in your mind, what are some of the problems with American healthcare that stand out to you as someone who studied it? Yeah, um, so I think you did a really nice job of demonstrating sort of the, the main problems. Um, Americans spend almost 20% of GDP on healthcare every year um, where it, it's been increasing and there's no there's no expectation that that's going to slow down or stop. Um, so we spend much more than than other developed countries on healthcare, um, and we generally get worse results. And so we have uh, very high rates of medical errors and medical uh, problems. Um, people who go into um, into hospitals, for example, have a relatively high rate of medical errors, hospital-borne infections, um, and yet we're really under-investing in things like preventive care and the, the kinds of care that would prevent people from getting into the hospital in the first place. So I focus in the book on birth and death, but I think this, this diagnosis really extends to healthcare as a whole. So those are kind of the, the really crucial problems. We spend a lot and we don't get a lot on that investment, um, but then I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how we got here. Yeah, I wanted to ask that because we obviously on the American idea, we like to take the long view and try to take the deep view. 
and get a sense of sort of the causes of the problem, the roots of the problem. How far back do they go? Where do you locate the beginnings of this difficulty? Yeah, so I think the problems really start in the, I mean, in the 1800s, but but they really come to a head in the early 1900s. So uh, in the early 1900s, we still had a fairly pluralistic medical system. So you had, you had midwives and you had physicians, and the practice of medicine was really just sort of in the process of professionalization. Um, most people were cared for at home, so hospitals were still kind of... Um, they weren't really widespread and, and they were pretty variable in their quality. And so a lot of people avoided hospitals because you weren't entirely sure what you were gonna get. Um, and just because the technology was so limited, people didn't, hospitals couldn't do a lot for you. So we just, we didn't have penicillin in early 1900. We didn't have a lot of the really basic kinds of medical care that we, that we take for granted today. So what happens in the early 1900s, though, is this power struggle between all these different pluralistic medical groups. And so uh, the most obvious one and the one that I touch on most uh, in, in the most depth in the book is the, the conflict between midwives and physicians um, for sort of market share over, over birth. Um, and birth, of course, was a really interesting sort of battlefield because uh, women, you know, it happens to most women during their lives. And so it, it becomes this really important event. And uh, so there was this kind of battle over who was going to so, sort of how we were going to think about medical, the medical profession as a whole. Um, so one of the first things that happens, and this happens in the 1800s, but it really, I, I think, comes to a head in the 1900s, um, is that physicians associations start gaining more power, and in particular, the American Medical Association, and then later the American Hospital Association. And so they start pushing for state-level licensing laws, which, which affect who can provide health care. And a lot of times this was framed as being about patient safety. But if you actually go back and look at some of the earliest statistics, for example, on physician-assisted births, uh, you'll find that they're actually more dangerous than midwife-assisted births because physicians would use tools and they didn't know that they were supposed to wash their hands. And there were all sorts of um, infectious deaths associated with, um, with physician-based birth. Um, that obviously changes once we start understanding germ theory and once we start getting antibiotics, right? So physicians become more safe as time goes on, but it was not the case that licensing followed safety. It was that safety follows licensing. So in this early part of the 20th century, you kind of had this power struggle. And so a bunch of different things happen. And there's a couple just points that I want um, the, the listeners to kind of be able to, to see on this map. And the way that I think about it is a kind of landscape of, or a watershed of, of healthcare regulations. And what ends up happening is that all of these policies, these complicated federal and state policies, they work together to create these downstream effects that nobody intended. So, so when we think about why U.S. healthcare is so bad, <laughs> that's a sort of generous way of putting it, um, we're really good at some stuff. We're very good at acute care. If you have cancer or serious heart disease, you probably want to be in the United States. But if you have a base, if you, if you need preventive care, if you need primary care, you probably don't want to be in the United States because those, those actually are very difficult to access. So there's real trade-offs involved. Um, but one of the first things that really hits in the, in the, um, in the early part of the 19th, or sorry, the 20th century is uh, the Flexner Report, which is this early report that attempted to standardize um, medical care, and, and in particular, hospitals and medical uh, schools across the United States. Um, one interesting side effect of this is that the majority of Black uh, medical schools were shut down as part of the standardization. And so that really placed more and more medical care in the hands of primarily white 
primarily well-off male doctors. So at the same time that we're kind of reducing the, the pluralism and diversity of medical education, we're also licensing midwives out of existence. And so there's this real kind of funneling of medical expertise. And then the next thing I'll mention, and then I, I do want to open it up for, for other follow-up questions. Um, the next big move, I think, is the Hill-Burton Act of 1946. And this is a jobs creation program after the war. And the goal was really to, to get people back to work after the war and build critical infrastructure in the form of hospitals. And the idea was, everybody, we need more hospitals, right? We have all of these new technologies. Let's get every community to have a community hospital. But the result of that was oversupply of hospitals. Now we have the, this in medical infrastructure that really prioritizes hospitalization and it prioritizes physician-based care over nurses, over midwives. And, it, and so the, this hospital structure, this infrastructure becomes too big to fail. Once you have built, once you've spent all this money on these hospitals, you can't, you can't just disinvest in them. So those I think are the two in the first half of the 20th century, the two really big Reflection points, and then there's a lot of other stuff that obviously goes on, and we can talk. Well, about I that have too. to tell you, that's fascinating to me, and I think it's going to be fascinating to a lot of our listeners. That you know, when you think about how did we come to a model, as you put it, of physician-based and hospital-based healthcare in the United States, I think a lot of people would have said, "Well, it's got to be uh, because of advances in medicine and medical training, and it's also got to be because of market forces." And your suggestion is, in fact, it's not economics or medicine or science that created this, but policy. Yes, I, I would argue that the biggest levers were policy. Uh, obviously, technological advances played a really large role in this. And, and partly part of it was that people saw the potential of those technological advances and really wanted to prioritize policy dollars around those advances. But from, from a sort of big perspective in the 20th century that the really important levers um, were in fact not scientific. They were, they were really policy. And we'll see that more when we get to the, the Medicare and, and Medicaid um, acts because those, those just add additional complexity to, to the system. Yeah, that was really actually my next question. So you've, you've taken us up through the mid 20th century, 1946 and then beyond, but obviously when we get Medicaid and Medicare as part of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society in the 60s and then later in the 70s, what effect do those programs have on this physician-based, hospital-based medical system? Yeah, so the first one is the Medicare Act of 1965. And, and, this, and again, what I want to sort of, again, reiterate is that very few, I think there were some probably... Um, maybe not so great motives for some of the licensing conversations, but the, the conversation around medical uh, around Medicare, for example, I mean, no one goes into these policy conversations with evil motives, right? Everyone was, everyone thought they were genuinely trying to solve a problem. And so the problem that Medicare was meant to solve was that we have this growing uh, population of older people. We really need to make sure that they have access to high quality health care. And so the goal was to ensure access while also controlling costs at the same time. The problem, though, as is the case with all policy kinds of conversations, is that it really depends on who's in the room. And so if you look at the conversations around Medicare and how Medicare got constructed as opposed to what was happening in European countries at the same time, what happens is that you have a real focus on the American Medical Association, uh, American Medical Association and the American Hospital Association, who are really looking at ways to solidify their market share and reduce competition from 
um, alternative providers. And so one of the things that we get out of Medicare is this fee-for-service system. So one thing that physicians in the United States said is we don't want the state telling us how to practice medicine. We don't want the state uh, rationing medicine. And that seems to make sense, right? I mean, none of us want medicine rationed. Um, but what happens is that we found then Medicare on this uh, fee-for-service uh, system, which means that doctors and, and hospitals get paid for everything they do to a patient, whether that helps, whether that leads to better outcomes. Um, and it actually draws resources away from preventive care and from high-quality communication. And so one of the things we see at the end of life, and this is a, a, a statistic that is pretty uncontroversial, but the vast majority of, of physicians recognize that people at the end of life, Americans at the end of life in particular, get far too much care. And it's often care that's harmful. Uh, it may even shorten people's lives at the end of life. And so the problem becomes, well, how did we get into the system? Well, we got into this system because the very structure of Medicare encourages providers to do things in order to, to get paid. As whereas in to some cases, just to, just to state the obvious, whereas in some cases, for especially at end of life, it might be better for the patient not to do something. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But if you're not having those conversations, and this is something that physicians themselves are very frustrated with. So I, I did a lot of interviews with, with physicians and other providers uh, when I was writing the book, and all of them agree that the one outcome that nobody foresaw of the way that Medicare was structured, and, and part of the reason that this matters now is that Medicare policies influence private insurance policies. It's very rare for, so, so there's a kind of, um, the, the market actually does follow government policies in this area because they actually can't afford to do anything else. But a lot of physicians will, will point out that they have less than five minutes to talk to patients at a routine visit, right? And they're not, they're actively disincentivized from having conversations with patients because that takes away time that they could be doing other things. Um, so this, this kind of billable hours approach to, to medical care became really, really pervasive. And that of course ended up inflating costs because, you know, for those of us who, who study economics, we understand how incentives operate. Um, and so this, this starts this whole process of, we start seeing the cost of healthcare really explode um, shortly after this. And at the same time, we have during the seventies and eighties, an explosion in the technological capacity of medicine. And so a lot of things that nobody expected to be paying for in 1965, we're now paying for. Right. So we can keep people alive and we can do really highly technical things to their bodies that we had no idea would exist in 1965. And so the, the cost really starts ballooning after this point. So what about uh, since 1965, you say certainly that physician based, hospital based, very technological approach to medicine um, got stronger through the course of the 60s, 70s and probably 80s. Did that momentum continue and has it continued in the last 30 years? Yeah, so um, yes is the answer, but there's been there's been various attempts to kind of claw things back. And so uh, they've been generally relatively unsuccessful. Um, so we see all sorts of examples. Um, one one that I touch on in the book is the the Medicare hospice benefit, which is trying to, in 1982, trying to address this problem of just escalating care and wait a second, maybe we need to provide people with the opportunity to think more deeply about their goals at the end of life. And, and that ends up being 
being sort of a positive in some sense, but a negative in others, because again, it has these unintended consequences that no one really looked at. Um, and so one of the problems with the structure of the hospice benefit um, is that you can only get it if you have fewer than six months to live. That means that the vast majority of patients don't qualify for hospice, even if they are at the end of life, because most patients, you can't pinpoint how sick they are or when they're going to die. So the hospice benefit's very good for cancer patients and AIDS patients, which were the two kinds of patients that, that they were really focused on in this policy era of the 1980s. But what happens very quickly is that now a huge proportion of people who need hospice are, for example, dementia patients. And they don't qualify for hospice because we don't we can't tell how long a, hospice, uh, a dementia patient's going to have. So, so again, I think one of the major themes is unintended consequences. Nobody, you know, there were all of these good intentions at each policy step, but it was really hard to see how these were going to play out over 20, 30, 40 years. So there's those kinds of things. Um, another really interesting example are certificate of need laws which I didn't even know existed when I first started this, uh, this research. Yeah, but I confess I've never of, heard of that. Yeah, so it's actually one of the primary, uh, it's a pretty controversial, um, and you either love them or you, well, you either think they're okay or you hate them. That's the, no one really loves certificate of need laws, but you either think they're kind of okay or, or uh, they're bad. But certificate of need laws were, were one of these attempts to ratchet things back. And so um, the federal government actually required at one point that every state, have what they called these certificate of need laws, which meant that any new medical infrastructure had to demonstrate that the community needed it before it could be built. So a hospital, for example, a hospital complex would have to apply for a certificate of need to show that there was a large enough market, a large enough need in the community. And so that seems like it sort of makes sense at the time. And so the federal government said, we're going to mandate this because the concern was that if you have a single payer, a, a major player, maybe not a single player, but a major payer like Medicare, the concern was that you could have oversupply of hospitals, which we already actually had to a certain extent in a lot of areas, but hospitals would keep building and they would have to keep raising prices because with each of them splitting the market, they would have to sort of get reimbursed by Medicare at, at higher and higher rates. So, so the idea was let's, let's make sure that the market is really regulated carefully. So that seems like it sort of makes sense um, until you actually look at the, the outcomes of certi certificate of need laws. And there's not very much evidence that they either kept costs down or that they helped regulate the supply of healthcare. But what they did do is they, they really privileged the existing players. And so what ended up happening is they, certificate of need laws became a way for existing hospitals and existing providers to veto the entrance of new providers who might have new and innovative ways of doing that. Ah, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. So in Kentucky, for example, um, until very recently, there are no birth centers in Kentucky because hospitals in Kentucky were able to veto the entrance of every single birth center that tried to open its doors, even though the evidence shows that birth centers are low cost, high quality, none of that mattered because all the all of that the hospitals had to demonstrate is we have this market totally fine. You know, we we're we're all set, right? Um, so you have these much costlier players essentially vetoing innovation. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, 
and civics. Hi, this is John Moser, chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources, since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. So obviously one of the complaints and it seems like where we are now is people have recognized that there is this problem that has built up, as you say, all the way really now over the last hundred years and kind of accelerated in its problematic nature. Um, Physician-based, hospital-based, highly technologized, very expensive. Um, people have recognized this problem. I mean, you've demonstrated it beautifully in your book, which is incredibly important work. Um, others have seen it, others have recognized it, and others have called for some kinds of reforms to the system that they think are necessary to get us to some combination of high quality, better access, and low cost. And of course, it's hard to put all those three things together, <laughs> but some combination of those three things. What kind of reform proposals are you seeing out there that address the problem that you've so cogently identified? Well, I don't want to be overly pessimistic. Um, I don't think well, there that's are- all right. Tell us the truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think we have a lot of really good policy levers at this point. The, I think the problem has become um, one of what, what we call crony capitalism, which is that the, the interests of the sort of large corporate interests have taken over the market. Um, and they've, and, and you have such significant regulatory capture. Um, and so for, for those of your listeners who, who maybe don't have an economic background, right, regulatory capture is when the, the industry that's supposed to be regulated actually owns the government agencies that do the regulating. And that's essentially what we have between the, the very large corporate insurance companies, the government regulators um, and the government policymakers in terms of Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and then, but, but adding to that complexity are the state, the state laws. Um, and so states handle licensing, they handle certificate of need laws. There's a, a bunch of different kinds of laws that um, really complicate the picture. And you need to, and, and so this is the problem we're in, you need to address the state level laws at the same time as you're addressing the federal laws. And that's really, really hard to do. And it's even more hard to do because you have this deep epistemological problem. There's this knowledge problem, which is that most people have no idea why the system is, is set up the way that it is or how it's set up in the first place. So when I was talking to midwives about why in New York state, we only had three birth centers in the entire state of New York for millions and millions of women giving birth. And the answer that I got from everybody was, well, 
it's just not a profitable system. And so I thought to myself, okay, maybe this is a market failure. Market failures happen. But then I was like, well, wait a second. Why, why are there tons in Oregon? Why does South Carolina have more birth centers than the state of New York? It can't be the case that the market works in Oregon in a different way than it works in, the, in New York. It turns out that it's not the market. It's the policies, right? So the New York state has this really, really restrictive certificate of need process that actually requires people to go through this public health and health planning council, and it's intensely bureaucratic. And so just entering the marketplace in New York is incredibly expensive. So even if we address the Medicare problems, we wouldn't be addressing these other kinds of, of state level restrictions. So I mean, I do have some sort of beacons of hope out there, but, but I think what I really want listeners to, to come away with is just how complex the system is. And so anyone who comes in with an easy answer is going to be wrong, right? If, if you say that the answer is to let the market take care of it, that's not going to work. But the answer also isn't going to be single payer because we've already, like, it just, we have such an entangled and complex system that a, any kind of single dramatic change uh, short of starting from scratch, which again, you can't get political support for. Right. Can, can we go back to that point that you just made? And I've, cause I've heard mm -hmm. a number of folks talk about um, trying to in some way bring markets and market discipline into health, the healthcare system in the United States. A, a simple things, for example, like pricing, right? Which is classic. Mm -hmm. You go to a store, you want a good, you see how much it costs and you decide whether or not you want to purchase it for that price. Um, I, with almost no exceptions, I think most of our listeners, if they go to a doctor, they have no idea how much they're actually going to pay. They don't know what the price for that visit is and they don't know what they're going to pay for that visit because you don't see prices posted and you don't have any idea ahead of time, normally, what if you have insurance, what your insurance is gonna cover. So there's this strange situation where you're purchasing a good in the market, but you really don't know what the price is to make an informed consumer decision. Is that accurate? Is that true? And is there anything that can be done about it? Yes, so I when I teach, uh, I teach a course that I developed called Medicine, Morality and Law that looks at exactly this sort of, um, uh, this the the system that we have, but also the downstream ethical implications of this system. So one of the problems with this system um, is that it actually violates almost every bioethical principle we claim to care about. So that's actually a really bad system, regardless of that. The cost. Sounds serious. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, so so the the, the major bioethical principles are uh, autonomy, meaning that you have to consent to procedures, um, beneficence, meaning that it has to do something good. For for you, non-maleficence, meaning that it can't do anything, it can't harm you, and then justice, meaning that people have access to these goods, right? People have access to medical care. Justice means a lot of things, but that's one of the things. Um, but if you look at our system, right, people can't truly consent to the kinds of things that are done to them. Um, I gave birth three times in hospitals, um, and the vast majority of the time, uh, people just did whatever they were going to do, right? Nobody asked me for consent. Um, most people, when they go to hospitals are not actually, they don't understand what they're consenting to. And the consent forms that you fill out are not robust on consent forms in any kind of way, right? You're not actually told what the harms are. So there's that problem. Um, there's the problem that we have, we actually do an enormous amount of harm to people via medical errors and over medicalization. Um, 
And then we also do a lot of, we just don't do good, right? A lot of the interventions that we do to people are not actually helping them. Um, and so one example that I give is, you know, my 93 year old grandfather before he passed away was on something like 19 different prescription medications. Wow. And my mom 19. finally called the physician 19. Um, and some required him to like split the pill and do all of this. Of course, he's he's in, at much greater risk of harming himself with these medications. And so my mom had a great conversation with her, with his physician and said, you know, we can cut these down to five. Like, what are the things that he's most at risk of dying of? And then you can treat those five things. But the problem is that our system's really fractured. So he was seeing multiple specialists. And so the multiple specialists, you know, his kidney physician uh, provides him with this prescription. And then his geriatric, his geriatrician provides this, right? So the fracturing of the system means that no one's watching all of the, the sort of bulk of what's going on. And so that has really serious ethical implications because we have very high rates of, for example, um, prescription errors, right? That's one of the, the serious harms. Um, and then we've already talked about, about access and the fact that it, it really is a kind of system of have and have nots. I have excellent medical care, uh, health insurance through my employer, but other people, um, you know, the, the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is, is uh, medical debt. So the, there's really serious ethical implications of the kind of system that we have. Um, and I think you're right that one of the things that we would hope to, that would happen is this, this market discipline. Um, but the way that I describe it to my students is, you know, we, we don't have prices at all. So we, we like to think, oh, it'd be better if prices were transparent. But that only works if they're actually prices. And so prices in the traditional economic sense are signals. They tell you something about supply and demand. But if you talk to hospital administrators, it's they literally just make up prices, right? Because the prices aren't pegged to supply and demand. They're not pegged to any kind of real market feedback. They're just made up between the hospitals, the insurance companies. Half the time, nobody knows why they're charging what they're charging. And, and so, so that, when we... So that fact, that's an amazing fact, if that's true. Because, I mean, it does help to explain why you can go to a hospital, for example, for... A blood draw, and it is astronomically expensive. And then you go to a local a blood draw clinic, and it's much cheaper, and you got exactly the same service. Yeah, yeah. Just looking at my own experience, and I, I don't have a lot of experience in hospitals, but my three births varied from $3,000 to close to $16,000 with the exact same, no complications, same number of of providers. Um, it just happened to be a different room. I don't, I don't fully, we never really got clarification. So we don't have prices at all. So, so I think a big argument that people make about transparency is missing the entire point. We don't have prices in the first place. So transparency doesn't help us. That, without prices, you can't have market discipline. So talk a little bit about some of the things that we've seen for people to try and I'll say escape for lack of a better word, escape the system. So I'm thinking, for example, of some people who have the resources who will hire concierge doctors because they say, for example, I want a doctor who knows me, who can coordinate my care, who I have immediate access to, and I don't have the siloing and fracturing of care that you talked about with your grandfather. Yeah, so um, I actually think concierge care is is one of the more hopeful uh, sort of areas. Um, 
it's true that right now it's it's predominantly geared toward the wealthy, but that's the case with the vast majority of innovations. They start with the wealthy and then eventually they become lower cost enough that most people can access them. Um, a friend of mine, when she was working out in, um, in Oregon, actually didn't have health insurance for a little while. And so in order to get uh, just basic routine preventive care, she had a concierge doctor, but it was a low cost concierge doctor. So she paid something like $50 a month for access to all of the vaccinations that she needed or you know whatever she was whatever she needed her her yearly checkups obviously she wasn't covered if something catastrophic happened which is why you need you know you need some form of insurance at this point but i think that the concierge model is really hopeful because one of the things that one of the reasons that physicians move into the concierge model uh, is because it allows them to opt out of insurance altogether so by removing themselves from the bureaucracy they can actually create prices. They can actually say, here's this, here's what my time is worth. Here's what I think this procedure is worth. Um, if you look at, for example, the 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 fastest dropping, and, and I'm 99% sure that this is true, <laughs> the fastest dropping um, specialty in medicine is plastic surgery. And it's because most people pay out of pocket for plastic surgery. And so the market creates its own, or it lowers cost over time as more people have access, right? There's still quality, it's still being regulated, but the prices are dropping. It might be the only area of medicine where prices are dropping because it's where the market is operating. Fascinating. Yeah. So you could see, and uh, state regulations, federal regulations, do they, they obviously allow for the emergence of things like concierge doctors, at least so far. Yes. Um, so it, it is, I think this is where licensing becomes an issue. So um, in a lot of states, for example, nurse practitioners um, are not licensed in the same way as physicians. They don't have the same autonomy as physicians, but nurse practitioners are fully capable of providing a lot of care and they're a, a relatively low cost provider compared to physicians. So we still have these policy blocks where I think we have more innovation, you know, physicians assistants, nurse practitioners, midwives, we have a lot of really qualified people that we keep out of the market via these licensing requirements. And it's no, it's no surprise that a lot of the licensing is, is really meant to protect the people who are already operating in the marketplace. Um, so, but I, I do see a lot of hope in the sense that we already have a lot of concierge kinds of systems, right? There's already things that people pay out of pocket for. And in general, the things that people are paying out of pocket for, we're seeing costs go down and we're seeing quality go up. So, uh, Lauren, if you could wave your magic wand after studying the healthcare system in the United States uh, and political feasibility were not the issue. Um one or two of the most significant reforms that we ought to make? Well, I, I think one of the major ones would be having some form of low-cost catastrophic coverage that Americans could access easily, right? So whether you have some sort of government-subsidized catastrophic care that people, that, that increases, and by catastrophic care, I mean, if you get hit by a bus, right? Who's going to pay your medical bills, right? That's the kind of stuff that keeps people up at night, especially people without insurance. 
it's the other stuff that we shouldn't be paying for and we shouldn't be using insurance to pay for, right? It's preventive care. It's the, it's the sort of general upkeep of the, of the human body that we shouldn't be using insurance for. Insurance should be for emergencies and not for sort of the routine way that people think about medicine. And so I think if we meant, if we moved, if I had a magic wand, right, I would say that we'd have some sort of government supported or subsidized uh, catastrophic insurance care, um, probably not offered by the government, but perhaps subsidized by the government to allow people to have access. Um, and then I think we do move to concierge care for everything else, get insurance, get third party payers out of the marketplace and allow prices to actually be real. Um, and once you did that, I think you would have, there would be things that would need to work out. There's unintended consequences with everything that you choose to do, but I think we would be able to see more of what's actually going on. Whereas right now, because we have these behemoths, we have the government, these huge insurance companies, we have state policies that are interacting with them. We have hospital associations. I mean, all of these huge interest groups really prevent us from seeing the picture, the full picture. And so I think taking care of the payment model, right? Moving the payment model to a price model would probably be the, the first real step. If people want to, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know we're just in a way scratching the surface, laying out the big principles, but man, so important for us to understand. It's a, obviously it's a topic and an area of life that affects us every day, all the time, our own lives, our children's lives, our parents and grandparents' lives. Um, if people want to learn more about Lauren Hall and what you're thinking, you have a Substack. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the Substack actually came about um, as a result of conversations between my husband and I about uh, just growing polarization and the kind of false binaries that people are forced into. So some of this I talk about in the, the medicalization book, which is you have to choose between for example, market-based solutions and single-payer healthcare. And I just don't think that, I think that's a forced choice. I think we have a lot more creative creativity and a lot more options than we than we give ourselves credit for. So the, the goal is to try to think about this concept of moderation, not as a form of compromise, but as an actual principled radical approach to politics. So um, it's actually part of my next book manuscript and the blog is a place that I kind of play with ideas and, um, and I would love to see people on the Substack. It's always fun to have, uh, to have people comment. And I think it's called a Radical Moderate's Guide to Life. Yes, yes. I'm nothing <laughs> if not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Thank you, Lauren, for such an illuminating, interesting, fascinating conversation. Uh, a lot of sobering uh, thoughts, sobering statistics, but some rays of hope as well. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.